The mission of Waterstone Church is to be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ to proclaim his kingdom, Jesus reigns, and to demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy to our neighbors. So one of Waterstone's strategy for this demonstration is to partner with like-minded ministries who are really attached to people in our culture where God's heart goes. And one of those ministries is called Royal Family Kids Camp. Er yeah. A lot of volunteers in the house today. It's an amazing ministry. It provides a camp experience, a five-day camp in summer for foster kids, kids in the foster care from Denver, some surrounding counties, and just gives them experience not only of camp and the great Colorado outdoors, but of the love of Christ. So we want to have you here from a couple of volunteers this morning, and then I'm just going to come back up and just really actually demand that you get involved in Royal Family Kids Camp. Take a look at the screens. Hi, I'm Melissa Rose. And I'm Jenna Rose. We're here to talk to you about Royal Family Kids. We're volunteers for this organization. Royal Family Kids, um, it means so much to us because it's an organization that comes along kids who have had difficult circumstances in their lives. A lot of them have been abused and neglected. And Royal Family is there to come around these kids and love on them and show them support and love and God's love and help them to build confidence, self-esteem, and create just really great memories, wonderful memories. It was around 2013 and um, somebody came up on stage, one of the, the directors came up on stage and talked about their experience with Royal Family. And I was so interested in it and I thought, well, let me give this a try. So I did the Royal Family camp for a couple of years and then I came back when my daughter could volunteer with me. Yeah, um, I, I had seen her do her summers of camp, you know, and I remember calling her and being like, you know, where are you? <laughs> you know, like toddler style. And um, uh, she, she told me that she was working with kids that really needed a little bit of extra help um, to feel better, to feel loved. And once I got to be 15, which is the age where you can volunteer for a royal family, um, I was like, I really want to go work with you this time. And so um, I got there and I've loved it ever since. Being involved with Royal Family Kids just really touches my heart. Um, I have personally come from a, a background of abuse, and um, it may not be the same kind of abuse as a lot of these kids, but it really, in my opinion, gives me a tender heart for these children and some empathy that really just helps me understand a little bit more of what they're going through, and I think it's really helpful. I think in contrast, I come from this amazing home uh, where, you know, my, my mom really broke a cycle of parenting. Um, she, I, I come from a really, really healthy uh, family environment that these kids just aren't privy to sometimes. Um, so I think it's amazing to be able to show them what a really healthy relationship not only looks like, but does for children um, and it's just I, I really like working with my mom <laughs> and, I, and I really like working with children with my mom uh, it's it's a great experience I'm just curious out there how many of you have volunteered in some way with Royal Family Kids Camp please raise your hand awesome thank you so much yep 
There are all kinds of ways to join the heart of Christ for these kids. We need help preparing for camp. We need financial contributions to underwrite camp. We need people to actually be willing to take a week off work, a week off their own lives, and go to camp. And just all kinds of roles to play during that week with camp. And then we need people after the the camp to help follow up with kids. So what I really want to invite you to do is even, you know, if this is a remote interesting, remotely interesting thing to you. If you would please, we're having a meeting right after the service out in the alcove, that's the door off the hub, the colored doors in that little room. Pack that in there and just hear a little bit about Royal Family Kids Kids Camp. And like we like to say at Waterstone, pray about it. And then we'll see you at camp. (laughs) So if you just find out and even give them your name, find out ways you can even be praying during that week. So we would just love your support for Royal Family Kids Camp. Well, we're in a series called Gentle and Lowly, and uh, I'm just so excited about today's message. And uh, I wanted to actually begin it with a bit of a story from a great memoir, one of the great memoirs, I, in my humble opinion, of our time called Angela's Ashes. It's by Frank McCord, and it's about an Irish childhood growing up poor in Ireland. And uh, What you're about to hear is Frank McCourt's memory of his first communion uh, in Ireland, and uh, it's just a great, great scene. It starts out with his grandmother, and uh, Frank says, my hair, he's a boy, it won't lie down. And then grandma says, you didn't get that hair from my side of the family. That's that north of Ireland hair you got from your father. That's the kind of hair you see on Presbyterians. She spat twice on my head. Grandma, will you please stop spitting on my head? If you have anything to say, she says, shut up. A little spit won't kill you. Come on, we'll be late for mass. We arrive at the church just in time to see the last of the boys leaving the altar rail where the priest stood with the chalice and the host glaring at me. And then he placed on my tongue the wafer, the body and blood of Jesus at last. At last. It's on my tongue. I draw it back. It's stuck. I had God glued to the roof of my mouth. (laughs) I tried to get God down with my tongue, but the priest hissed at me, stop that clucking and get back to your seat. God was good. He melted, and I swallowed him. And now, at last, I was a member of the true church, an official sinner. Mom, can I go now and make the collection? She said, after you have a little breakfast. No, said Grandma, you're not making no collection until you've had a proper First Communion breakfast at my house. Come on. We followed her. She banged pots and rattled pans and complained that the whole world expected her to be at their beck and call. I ate the egg. I ate the sausage. And when I reached for more sugar for my tea, she slapped my hand away. Go easy on that sugar. Is it a millionaire you think I am, an American with fancy furs? The food churned in my stomach. I gagged. I ran to her backyard and threw it all up. Out she came. Look at what he did. Thrown up his first communion breakfast. Thrown up the body and blood of Jesus. I have God in my backyard now. What am I going to do? I'll take him to the Jesuits, for they know the sins of the Pope himself. She dragged me through the streets of Limerick. She told the neighbors and passing strangers about God in her backyard. She pushed me into the confession box. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been an hour since my last confession. An hour? And what sins have you committed in an hour, my child? 
I overslept. I nearly missed my first communion. My grandmother said I have standing up north of Ireland Presbyterian hair. I threw up my first communion breakfast, and now grandma says she has God in her backyard. What should she do? (laughs) The rest of the book's pretty good, too. Forgiveness can bring anxiety. The scripture affirms that Jesus forgives our sins. But have you thought about this? What does that actually mean? Does it mean that all our sins up until the point that we become a follower of Jesus are forgiven, but then after that point we have to keep confessing all our new sins? What if we forget one? What if we die with unconfessed sin? And secondly, what is confession? Like, does God need our confessions? Is, is confession like a requisition form for new mercy? Why do we need to practice confession? And lastly, if Scripture seems to indicate all our sins are forgiven, past, present, future, everything's finished, what in the world is Jesus doing right now? What's he doing? Those questions and more on this week's edition of Gentle and Lowly. Jesus has been inviting us to come to his heart, his heart that is gentle, controlled toward us, soothing towards us, and lowly, like approachable. And he's inviting those of us who have weary and burdened hearts. And one of the ways where gentle and lowly connects with weary and burdened is in this idea of forgiveness. So we're going to talk about forgiveness. We're going to talk about one of Jesus' present ministries called the intercession. And as we go through, hopefully answer some of these other questions. Our text for this morning, I just want to get it in front of us so you can be uh, ruminating on it. Here's the text, and then I want to jump in at a place where our book that we're reading along with it, Gentle and Lowly, starts. But for now, here we go. There have been many of those priests... The writer of Hebrews is talking about Jesus as our great high priest. There's been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely. The old English language, to the uttermost, which is the title of chapter 8 in the book. To the uttermost, those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. More on that last phrase in a moment, to intercede for them. But I want to start where Dane Ortland starts is this. The intercession of Jesus Christ, what he's doing in this time, is an often neglected doctrine. Why? Well, even in environments such as this where we're worshiping Jesus... We often think of Jesus only in the past tense. We think about him being born of a virgin, living a sinless life. We think about him uh, dying on the cross. We think about him rising from the dead, doing everything that was necessary for Jesus to forgive our sins. And then we kind of put the period at the end of that sentence and said, we're good. 
I want to just expand this sermon a little bit at the front end by saying Jesus is not only past tense. He's present tense, and he's doing a lot (laughs) as we speak. I just want to talk about that for a few moments, and forgive me if I get a little excited about this. Uh, It's kind of been like rediscovery here some this past week. It's been fun. So what's Jesus doing now? in addition to the intercession, which we'll talk about in a moment. First thing, (laughs) first thing, like, not a small thing. Jesus is in charge. He's ruling all things. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 with me. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Colossians talks about that on the cross, Jesus disarmed all the powers of evil, and they are already beginning to fray. They are already weakened. They are already beginning to disappear. Jesus is pushing back all enemies in his reign, as the Latin fathers call it, the regnum Christi, the reign of Christ. He's pushing back the bad. Now, you read that verse, and I tell you, you I've done a lot of funerals. In my, in my career, and anymore, it's really hard for me to stand by an open grave, as we did last week with a blessed family of Waterstone, and their dad went home to heaven. It's, it's hard to stand there and not now think of how Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15, death, where's your victory? Grave, where's your sting? Because that guy's life is not over. He's in the presence of God now. And one day that body, not even eight feet, six feet of turf is going to be able to stop that body from coming out of that grave. I want to stand by an open grave, and I will do this before I'm done, and say, death, you got nothing. You've got nothing. Jesus reigns, and he is stronger than death. He has conquered death, and he's pushing back on it as we speak. The other text that I wanted to bring to our attention as we think of Jesus reigning is in Hebrews 1. I'm not going to read it now because, as you'll see, I'm going to be taking the task by the preaching planning team this week on my sermon structure, but you'll stay with me. I know you will. Um, I want to come back and talk about that verse in a minute. I want to go on next to the second thing that Jesus is doing in his present existence, and that's this. Jesus is making sure the gospel gets to sinners. Now, we just spent most of a year on the book of Acts. We saw this week after week. Acts begins in chapter 1 with these verses. I won't read them. They should be familiar to you if you've been around Waterstone the last year, that one of the callings of the church in Acts 1 is that we are to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And as we witness his reality, what he's done for us, what he's doing in the world, people are drawn to Jesus. And we saw that chapter after chapter after chapter in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. The Ethiopian government official comes to Christ, takes the gospel to Africa. Acts chapter 9, a Saul, a a Pharisee, deeply entrenched in Jewish Phariseeism, meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and becomes the apostle Paul. Acts chapter 10, the Italian battalion commander, Cornelius, becomes a Christian and takes the gospel to the Italians. I mean, all these things. Acts chapter 15, Lydia, a wealthy woman who runs a business, gets saved and she starts the church in Philippi. All these 
like chapter after chapter, which seem to indicate hour after hour, the gospel is going out to the ends of the world. Uh, to this current day, there's been nothing in the history of the world like the Christian movement, folks. Nothing. Where souls after souls are coming to Christ. And you know how this works, right? In the most like, difficult places in China, in India, where I read this morning they are burning churches, in Africa, in South America, in Central... In fact, I read this this week. Do you know that if you were to pile the billions of Christians together, and this is just to say that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You're listening? Now, the common Christian today, like the normal, if you were to do a median of all types, ages, stages, ethnicity, do you know what the normal Christian would look like today out of all the billions? It would be a 22-year-old female brown-skinned Pentecostal. Whoa! (laughs) I'm telling you, they're coming. In places where the gospel, like America, is diminishing, 22-year-old brown-skinned females are going to start showing up and calling churches like Waterstone, say, hey, get on board. Jesus is making sure the gospel gets to sinners to save them and then the third thing there's more but the third before we go to intercession is jesus is evaluating churches oh boy revelation 2 and 3 well revelation 1 is this massive vision of who jesus is and then revelation 2 and 3 are john and jesus they sit down and huddle around and say, let's look at how seven churches around the Mediterranean cradle in the first century are staying connected to that vision of Jesus. Five of the seven, he has words for. He says, I have this against you. The only two that are all positive are churches that are under severe persecution. Isn't it interesting how that works? Of the five churches, it seems there's at least three causes that Jesus wants to say to the churches. Look at what you're doing here. They're either distracted by the wealth and like the diversions that our cultures have to offer, distraction. Number two, bad doctrine. They get out of line doctrinally. Or three, they have lost their first love. Even in the first century, Christianity would get old and mundane and just habit and culture. Here's the thing. Be a little personal here with you. I've been in ministry for 35 years. The first 25 years, you scared the bejeebers out of me. I mean, I would get emails, constructive criticism, most of them just wholly intentioned for good. But if you were to do anything that was remotely like constructively critical about what I was doing, I got to just say, your affection was my idol. I'd get an email from you about something wrong, something going on, and I would not sleep at night. I'm almost over that. (laughs) Keep sending your emails, but I'm telling you, I'm sleeping better, except... When I wake up in the night, or is it me waking up, or is it me being woken up, to have a little conversation with Jesus 
about how he is now evaluating Waterstone. About Jesus saying, uh, I have this against you. Those are the sleepless nights I have now. What I'd like to do is invite you into my sleeplessness. If you're willing to even say as you get in bed at night, Jesus, wake me up. If you have anything to tell me about this body of believers that I love, but I know you love. If you have anything to show me, anything to tell me about Waterstone, Wake me up. That's what I want to hear. One condition, though. It needs to be not a them. It needs to be an us. Them's too easy. Us is, Jesus, I know you want me in this mess, too. <laughs> needs to be an us. So Jesus, he's like in charge of the world. He is uh, evaluating churches. He is getting the gospel to sinners. As I've thought about what Jesus might say to Waterstone, one thing keeps coming up again and again. And I, you know, I don't want to get all ramped up and charged up about this. Please receive it in the spirit it's intended. I wonder if one of the things Jesus would be saying to us is, Waterstone, are you distracted? Have you lost your first love? You know, um, we at Waterstone, you know, one of our staples, we have these three rhythms. Transform is seeing God's kingdom and his reign in you, growth. And then the second rhythm is what we call neighboring, where we see God's kingdom come to our neighbors and our co-workers and our loved ones. And we're always like talking about neighboring at Waterstone. And I know there's pockets of it going around. I know in my life there's pockets of it. <laughs> but is there anyone here that could really say, man, I could not be neighboring any more than I'm doing now. I could not be telling more people about Jesus than I'm telling now. Here's the thing. I'm convinced that what will make Waterstone passionate about neighboring, about telling others about Jesus, praying for neighbors, engaging them in conversation, welcoming them to your table, what really makes us do that is not offering a class on how to neighbor, not giving us the confidence that if you get into a conversation with your neighbor, you are going to know the answer to every question they ask. It's none of that. Those things could be helpful. But understand how the human love cycle works. When you love something, do you really need to be told to talk about it? When you are like filled up with passion, like you're ignited about something, you talk about it. Are we ignited about Jesus such that we talk about him?
that's what wakes me up. So let's talk about him for a minute. An ignition sentence. Hebrews chapter 1, back to where we were. Hebrews chapter 1, it's this wall of its one sentence where it talks about long ago, in many times and in many places, God spoke to us. Hebrews 1, uh, Tara, uh, should be in there. 1, 1 to 4, 1 to 3. And um, that's the Old Testament, right? God speaking long ago, Flannery O'Connor once said that to the hard of hearing you shout and to the almost blind you draw large startling figures. That's the Old Testament. God trying to get the attention of his people. God trying to get their uh, notice and to, to pour his love over them. But in these last days, the writer says God speaks to us in his son. And to get our attention, he actually reverses the normal Greek language word order and puts the son first. Switch verb and noun in the Greek. And it's like, Jesus, you got to notice him first. He is what it's about. Why? As the verses go on, it talks about that he is the one who's the heir of all things, which means everything ends with Jesus. It ends with Jesus. And then it says that he was there in the beginning. Everything begins with Jesus. And then it says that he upholds all things by the power of his word. In the middle, it's all Jesus. It begins with Jesus. He upholds everything by the power and then by his power. And then he uh, is the end. Every knee will bow. Every, history is linear. It's going to an end, a goal. And it's Jesus. My folks, I just want to remind you that the most important things that are happening in our worlds, the most important things happening around the world are not happening on the marbled halls in the Washington Beltway. Nor are they happening in the marbled halls of Colfax and Broadway. Nor are they, and these are our friends, but nor are they happening in the marbled halls of the Taj Mahal in Jefferson County. The most, I mean, look, you know that the government can feed a belly. It can't change the human heart. So where's our emotional investments going? Where's our passion? Is it about those things? They're important. Yes, God wants good government, but they are not the thing. Jesus is the thing. If we want to see lives change and communities change and cultures redeemed, we are all about Jesus. He defines reality. And not only is that true in history, but verse 3 goes on to say that Jesus is like no one else because he is the uh, radiance of the glory of God. That word radiance means intense brightness. And whenever I think of that word, I think, remember a couple years ago when the eclipse happened and all of us were running around with our little glasses or box things and all, you Lockheed Martin engineers are going to have to tell me exactly the science of all that. But what I do know is you could look directly at the sun and not have your eyes get burned out. That's Jesus. He enables us to look at God and not have our eyes blown out of our head. He puts God into words. He is who God is. If you want to know God, know Jesus. He's not only the radiance, he's also the exact representation. In the original language, that's a son reflecting the traits of his dad. Jesus is the only one, as the text says, who can do it exactly. If you want to know God, 
know Jesus. So let me say this quickly. Any of you watching online, any of you in the room exploring Christianity, trying to figure out what like, this is about, let me just say this directly to you. Christianity is about Jesus Christ. If you want to know who God is, know Jesus. So one of the things that means is that you should not just take my word for it or any other television preacher's word for it. I'm a television preacher. <laughs> you should not take anyone else's word for it. You should participate in our Take a Bible Home program. Take that Bible home with you and read the original sources, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They will tell you who Jesus is, and knowing who Jesus is is to know who God is. Second thing, for those of us who do know Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, he's writing to a very urban, sophisticated culture in the ancient world, heavily influenced by Rome, uh, it, it, it's a Jewish community, but all around them is this Roman culture. And in Roman culture, the only thing wrong you could do when it came to God is to say that there's only one God. Does that sound familiar? In our 21st century sophisticated, urban, growingly secular culture, the only thing that's wrong to do in our culture is to say there's one God. To say that there's truth and not truth. The writer of Hebrews is saying to us, look, this is who Jesus is, therefore you cannot put him on the shelf with all the other gods and say he's one good option among many. Jesus himself never allowed us to do that. Why? When you read in those gospels who Jesus is, he made these massive, massive claims, right? He viewed himself all the time in all he thought, all he said, all he did as the uncreated creator. So, for instance, near the end of the Gospel of Matthew, one of his final sermons, Jesus makes this statement. At the end of time, every person ever is going to stand before me. And I will say to them, sheep, you go to my right. You followed me. Goats, nothing against goats, but goats don't make it. And all of that is going to be decided on what you did with me. Can you imagine hearing someone say that? Like if I were to say that to you, what would you think? Either this guy is like so far above, like, like, only God could, would say something like, or he's like a lunatic on the fringe of losing his mental health. He's gone. Those are the choices when it comes to Jesus. Those are the choices. Either he's the radiance of the glory of God, and we must bow down before him and throw everything down and say, command me. Or he's a sham. Like, he needs help. The only way to respond to Jesus, are you listening, is extremely. N.T. Wright, he writes this, he calls us out of the shallows. 
How can you cope with the end of the world and the beginning of another one? How can you put an earthquake into a test tube or the sea into a bottle? How can you live with a terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself came to live and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. Either it is the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. We may not be content there, but we don't know how to escape. Jesus calls us today from the shallows to a depth. That depth is a calling from Jesus, an invitation to consider the fourth thing that he's doing today, he is interceding for us. So I want to go back to Hebrews 7 now, and I want to talk about what it means that Jesus today is interceding for us in praying us out of the shallows, as N.T. Wright said. I want to talk about he always lives to intercede for them. So we all have, I think, a sense of what interceding means or intercession when two parties are not getting along, they're struggling in relationship, an intercessor comes in and, and, and in behalf of one makes a case to the other to try and bring them closer together. So like Dane Ortland in the book, uh, chapter 8 to the uttermost says, it's like parents talking to a teacher about their child. Intercession. Or it's like a sports agent talking to a team about an athlete. So it's two parties that need to come together Renew relationship, a third party, the intercessor comes and talks to one party in behalf of another. But as we think about Jesus doing that, talking to the Father for us to bring us together, you might have this question, and as we, one of the earlier questions is, uh, does that mean that something's wrong? Does that mean like what Jesus did on the cross for us wasn't good enough, it's incomplete or unfinished? No. What we mean when we say Jesus is interceding for us, Dane Ortland puts it into a very powerful sentence. He said that intercession is Jesus applying what the atonement accomplished. Applying now, moment by moment, the fullness, the victory, all that Jesus accomplished in his death, he's applying that now, moment by moment, in our lives. Look at me with Romans 8, where this is also mentioned, this ministry of intercession. Will, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Any charge, like a verdict. Is it, it is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one, because God has justified. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So what's he doing? If Jesus' work on the cross is finished and all that it was needed for our forgiveness has been done, what's the intercession? Well, it's Jesus applying what he's done to our moment-moment existence. And the question then is, why is that necessary? The reason it's necessary is because we, we are prone to lesser verdicts. The greatest verdict that's ever could be read is that, you know, 
The, the verdict over all of humanity is that we fall short of the glory of God, that we've missed the mark, that we've all, you know, we can't live up to God's standards. Heck, we can't even live up to our own standards. And so we're always falling short. And so the only verdict that really could calm our hearts is a verdict from God that said, I know what you've done, but you're good. You're forgiven. The verdict's good. That's the verdict that the human heart needs. But we're so prone to get that good verdict with lesser verdicts. So let me, let me illustrate. Why is, it, why is it that most of us are really, really concerned about how we look? <laughs> why, why is it? Why, why do we like spend so much time doing all sorts of things so that we look good? Because we like those verdicts. We like people to look at us and say, wow. She works out. Or, wow, they know how to dress. Wow, they're beautiful. Am I wrong? Do we like those verdicts? It's very quiet in here. <laughs> Nothing wrong with those verdicts as long as we understand they are lesser verdicts. We get verdicts at work. Man, they're good at what they do. We get verdicts in our friendships. Oh, they are so loyal and compassionate. Gent- we get verdict. We're, we, want to be, we want to have verdicts as a parent. That's a big one in our little culture here. We, we want verdicts from everywhere that can kind of fill up that one verdict that we're really looking for. Here's the problem, though, with lesser verdicts, and I know you thought this because you've experienced it. Number one, Number one, you get a lot of those verdicts, and what? Still like a little more. The law of diminishing returns. The more you have, the more you want. And number two, about lesser verdicts, you know this too, right? You will only have those verdicts for a little while. The loved ones, you're already losing your grip on those, I'm telling you at 61, you ain't going to look good forever. (laughs) Lesser verdicts. We're losing them. Which is why we need the final verdict. The final verdict is that verdict from God that says no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, You're good with me. You're justified. You're beautiful. You're my child. That's the verdict we want. And so, what this this, uh, need is that we have is what Jesus is moment by moment trying to pour into our life. So let me just real quickly say, because I think the way that we often get to that verdict again and again and have a refresh button is through confession. So I want to talk in a minute about confession, and we'll wrap there. But one, like confession, when I used to read these verses in Hebrews 7 and, and this idea of intercession, I didn't understand it. I mean, my initial pass at this for like the first decades of my Christian life was like this, that... Um, Jesus would be talking to the Father. He'd be interceding for me. And Jesus would say something like, yeah, there's Larry Renault. He said, he said that he wouldn't do X and he wouldn't do Y. But yesterday, Father, he did X 
and why. So Father, would you just give a little more mercy that I could take back and give to Larry and we could have a, a new start. How depressing is that? Wouldn't even Jesus himself get weary of doing that? I mean, that, that's not it. That implies that the mercy is ongoing and that Jesus is still on the cross. It's not that. It's more like this. Father, I'm here again. I'm praying for Larry all the time. I'm praying for Larry. I love Larry. I'm praying for Larry. And you put your name in the blank. I'm praying. And I'm here because yesterday, yeah, Larry did X and he did Y. But I'm not here to get more mercy. I am not here to get more mercy. Father, you have my broken body. You have my shed blood. All the mercy that Larry's ever going to get, he already has. He's forgiven. Do you know why I'm here, Father? I'm here, and I know you love to do this, Father. I'm here because you and I, we're going to remind Larry of the final verdict again. He's forgiven. He's a child of God. He's justified. He's declared righteous in my sight. I love him. On we go from here. Larry gets the final verdict. And so do you. Jesus is praying that into our life moment by moment. How do we get it? Not like we've already got the mercy. How do we get reminded again and again? And how, like Dane Ortland said, God hits the ref when Jesus intercedes for us, he hits the refresh button on the word justification. <laughs> final verdict, final verdict, final verdict. We get it by confession. That's why this is such an important spiritual discipline. So let me remind you what confession is. We confess our sins not because God needs our confessions in order to forgive sins. He's already forgiven our sins. Are you listening? Confession is not for God. It's not for his benefit. Confession is for our benefit. It's for us. And what happens when we confess? Well, two things happen. First, we are liberated from guilt. We're reminded that in the final verdict, all the ropes from the lesser verdicts have been cut. And those sins that are trying to drag us under, those things we're chasing hard in life but are not the ultimately good things, they're not going to pull us under because we're confessing that sin and remembering the final verdict. So we're liberate. And also, I think what confession does is help put a coating of protection around our heart from the devastating toxicity of shame. Shame can just rip our heart apart fiercely. But confession and going to the final verdict again helps coat our heart. Second thing, we'll be at least a little less likely to sin in the same way. If we actually practice confession and we ask these two questions as we confess our sin, we say, God, I would encourage you to start doing this. God, why did I do that? Why did I just do what I did? As we talked about last week, it's always about disordered love. What do I love more than Jesus to make me do what I did? You explore it a little bit. You need it. And then, secondly, you ask, what's the damage? Have I damaged relationships? Is this diminishing me? You know, when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. When God says do, he means do help yourself. What am I doing to myself? That's against what God wants for me. What are, is the damage? So when we confess our sins, 
we're saying, why did I do that? And what's the damage? That will help us hate sin. It takes the makeup off. And so we spend a little time in confession. We cut its grips of sin on our life and we examine it to make us hate sin more. So I would encourage you at least two ways. One is when you sin, confess. Keep a short account. In that moment, God, I'm sorry. Why did I do that? What's the damage? And final verdict, I'm forgiven. Or, and I should say, not or, and I think it's good in your journey to have a regular practice of confession where you go and you look for the dust balls in the corner, so to speak. Where you through a psalm, where you pray a psalm daily, or through uh, the Book of Common Prayer, Google Book of Common Prayer Confession, you'll find this. We're going to actually do it in a minute. This amazing confession uh, that helps us just evaluate where we are in, in, in our journey. Martin Luther used to take the Ten Commandments once a week and pray through each one just to see how he was doing in his pursuit of God. So those kinds of things where we explore our lives for the sins we may not even be aware of. So Jesus is busy right now. And one of the things he's doing is interceding for us that we will know the final verdict always. And one of the ways we stay connected to that final verdict that we are forgiven and justified in God's sight is through the practice of confession. It was uh, a quote by uh, Louis Burkhoff, great theologian. He said, and uh, Dane Ortland quotes this, one, one back, I think, Tara, the Louis Burkhoff quote. We, it's about praying that Jesus is praying for us every moment. This is my bad, by the way. Poor Tara, like, can you imagine trying to follow me as I'm talking with <laughs> slide? It, it is a, yeah, go Tara. <laughs> It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our prayer. And then this question that I want to give a 10-second take home. What would it mean for you to overhear Jesus Christ saying your name to the Father in prayer? Please, can we stand together for this act of confession? I forgot to say at the start of the message that we actually have two sermons today. We've just finished the first one. You get to preach the second one. It's called the Lord's Supper. And in a moment, you'll be invited to go to stations around the room, gluten-free in the back. But around the room... We'll take our time, and this is always messy at Waterstone because families are messy. Feel free to talk to people. Feel free to, like, embrace, hug, shake hands. This is a family moment. And don't worry if you have to crawl over people to get back to your seats. That just makes it even more interesting. Take this time. Be with one another. Be with Jesus. He's come again and invited us to a table where he wants to speak over us the final verdict. You are forgiven. You are justified. Let's 
absorb this together with a confession. Would you say this aloud with me? Most holy and merciful Father, we confess to you and to one another that we have sinned against you by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not always had in us the mind of Christ. You alone know how often we have grieved you by wasting your gifts, by wandering from your ways. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Free us from our sin that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And then this final verdict over you from the scriptures, God's voice saying over us, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Amen.